The Power Your Inner Runner podcast series is brought to you by Nike Running and Rebel. It just gives me time to think through a lot of things. Like I do a lot of soul searching when I'm running. It really helps me manage stress. I think that's probably my favorite part about running. Making sure that I'm aware of how I'm feeling and how my body is feeling so that I'm not going too hard. You need to keep checking on yourself or you can get carried away and go too hard. I think you shouldn't be limited by other people's limitations. You know, nobody else knows what you're capable of other than yourself. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Hello, and welcome back to our Power Your Inner Runner podcast mini-series in partnership with Nike Running and Rebel. This is our second of three episodes with elite Nike athletes who are sharing their best running tips and tricks, whether you're a complete beginner all the way through to a pro looking for a fresh perspective. It's been so wonderful to see how many of you enjoyed our kickoff episode on mindset with the wonderful Katrina Bissett, and have already been implementing some of your learnings from her into your training. My top takeaway from that episode was the power of running with friends that I'd just forgotten about. I'd actually been really enjoying running alone for the mental benefits, but I just hadn't remembered how much harder it can be to push into a new distance when you're on your own and you're in your own head. So I locked in my first long run after that chat with Ange and a few of her friends. It was just a few days after this chat with Katrina and went from a solid 10K plateau that I'd been up against for quite a few weeks and just couldn't get past on my own to a lovely 18 kilometer run and I could have even kept going but I just didn't want to overdo it by going out too hard too fast which we all know is something some of us have tended to do and something Katrina and today's guest reminded us not to do but I just can't believe I was so thrilled with the breakthrough and hope that some of you also found Katrina's chat useful too. Do keep sharing your runs with us along the way as well it's been just so much fun to do this as a neighborhood and I'd love to know how you guys are going. Given that I also had a sneak peek of this episode before that run, I had the chance to implement some other tweaks recommended by today's Nike athlete, which were equally as impactful. So I'm very excited to share this one with you. In case you were worried, the episodes aren't sequential. So if you're only tuning in now, don't worry. Each episode stands alone and you can listen in whatever order you like. I met this wonderful woman during my first foray into running when we were training for the first half marathon I did in 2019, (laughs) building up from literally zero kilometers. And even though I've heard her story before, I was blown away all over again this time. While Katrina was a sprinter focusing on the 800 metres, we've got a long distance perspective today from a superstar Olympic marathoner. Yep, I am thrilled to have the inimitable Sinead Diver with us today, who, like Katrina, but in a completely different way, took a less conventional pathway into running. 
She is not only one of our best performing marathon runners ever at the Olympics, coming in the top 10 in Tokyo this year, she was also our oldest, or I say wisest, athlete competing at 44 years old to cross the line just four minutes behind the race winner. And the twist? Sinead only started running after her second child at age 33 when she was roped into a fun run at the Tan in Melbourne. In her debut marathon, she finished in second place overall, then won the Melbourne Marathon just four years later, and she keeps getting faster and faster. So if you've ever been told you can't do it or had skeptics doubting your potential, Sinead is your woman, showing how she continues to surprise with her sights set on Paris 2024 as she continues to improve each year. She also answers so many of our burning questions specific to longer distances, especially around the elusive management of each eating, drinking, and nature calling along the way. Coming into running later in life, she's a fabulous brain to pick about getting your body and mind into those 30 and 40 kilometer distances and living to tell the tale. Sinead is humble, funny, and full of warmth. I hope you guys enjoy. Sinead, welcome to the show. Hey, Sarah. It is lovely to see you again. You too. (laughs) We were so, so lucky to have Sinead come and give us a session before my first half marathon two years ago, which was the very, very early beginnings into running. And Sinead's been such an inspiration to me for really embracing something that you never, you know, knew that you loved or knew that you enjoyed and coming into it late. I mean, Sinead has literally gone from IT consultant to Olympian, which is extraordinary. So I'm so excited. I feel like the way that you converted me to running, you will have a lot of converted running lovers at the end of this episode. So I'm so excited to have you here. <laughs> no, thanks for having me. <laughs> so I think one of the most wonderful things about your journey, and we'll get into it in more detail, but guys, if you didn't already know, Sinead started running at 33 after the birth of her eldest son. So if any of you are sitting there fearful of running or worried that, you know, it's too late and you didn't start running when you were six or you haven't had a coach since you were 10 or whatever, you know, you can always find a yay that you never knew about or you never knew you could be so good at. But I wanted to just ask a couple of intro questions to set the scene. Where do you sit in the running landscape? What's your competitive distance? What are the other kind of distances that you enjoy running? Do you you only have one distance? Like, yeah, where do you sit in the landscape? I am definitely a long distance runner. Definitely better over the longer the race, the better I am. Having said that, I do like to race the shorter distances because it helps keep me fast for the marathon distance. So I think it's important to, you know, not just focus on the longer stuff because then it can get a bit harder to go that bit faster. So I would race anything from 3K to marathon would be my distance. Anything less than 3K, I haven't done for years and I don't think I'll... Yeah, I'm definitely not a sprinter, <laughs> for sure. I won't be throwing my I hat. didn't realize you did 3Ks. It's actually been quite a few years since I did a 3K. But yeah, I prefer the longer distances. So I like to yeah focus on those mainly for races. Yeah, that's been really interesting, actually, in this series, like realizing that the reason why a lot of us plateau in our running, I think, is because we just do the same distance over and over again. And I'm really getting this yeah. idea of diversity being really important. If you're better at the longer distances, you can really enjoy those longer workouts and, you know, grinding through them. But I think it's important to do the short, sharp stuff as well, just to keep the speed going. Because otherwise, if you lose that, then the marathon eventually becomes a little bit harder. And yeah, I always definitely think it's good to 
you know, get back on the track sometimes and do the shorter stuff as well. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm so thrilled to pick your brain about that as well, because that's been something people have really felt that they plateau at like a 10 or a 15 and they're really struggling to kind of get faster or break a certain pace. But another introductory question before we jump into that is just your favorite part of running. Like, what do you love about it that might convert the skeptics or get, you know, the reluctant runner into it? (laughs) There's lots of stuff that I love about running, but I think one of my favorite things is it just gives me time to think through a lot of things. Like I do a lot of soul searching when I'm running, more so on the easy sessions, like when I'm doing a track session or a fast session, I'm focused 100% on, you know, how I'm feeling in my body and physically in that. But then you know, I spend so much time during the week just doing easy running recovery runs that I love the just yeah, the time I have to think through, you know, issues that I have in life or how I'm going to deal with something. It really helps me manage stress. I think that's probably my favorite part about running. Yeah. And that's why it's like often really good for everyone to do, you know, because it's just that release from just, you know, everyday life. I found actually especially during lockdown, that having this goal at the end of the year of of the Melbourne Marathon has been such a mentally cathartic, much more than a physical pursuit. It's been like a moving meditation to just get get out of your space and just kind of, I think I have my best ideas when I'm on a long run. Yeah, so I feel that as well. (laughs) I'm always like, I need to write this down or I'm going to forget it. (laughs) Carry a little dictaphone. (laughs) And what would you say of sort of the hardest parts of running for you, but then how you you combat that? So I think for me personally, the hardest part about running or my running journey has been even though in some ways it's good that I started at 33, but I faced a lot of critics because of that. So I'm constantly having to prove myself, you know, that I'm still in peak condition and I'm not, my age isn't impacting my running, mm. but it's just like a constant daily battle to prove that and I feel that in every race I don't have the luxury of not having a good race because if I don't have a good race it's like oh she's gone she's done you know she's 44 now (laughs) whereas it's you know every athlete has a bad race every now and then it's just part of the process and you know you learn probably more from your bad races than your good Mm -hmm. ones so for me that that's been the biggest challenge and just yeah challenging that the perception that this is what a running journey should look like and I'm completely different to the typical running journey so when someone is different you know people don't accept them as much so I can't yeah it's been it's been hard trying to constantly prove myself and prove that I'm worthy of being here um so that's probably the toughest part of my journey well I think you have proven it many many times over and you continue to do so just blowing us all away and that's why I'm so thrilled to have you here particularly because I think we do have a really clear vision of what a runner's journey looks like and particularly getting to the achievements and speeds and you know medals and wins that you have it's so easy to walk into your life at this chapter and assume that you started with a coach when you were six and that there's been no you know diversions or it just would seem like you've had yeah. a really smooth pathway and I think in, <laughs> in the podcast generally outside of running that's something I really try and emphasize that no one's pathway is linear it's never smooth and also that you can come into a joy or a talent or a skill later than you would ever expect and it can become your life. So if you haven't found what you love yet, I mean, listening to Sinead, trust that it could it could come at any time in your life. You just never know. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Like there's this perception in society, uh, I think in particular for women, like once they hit a certain age, like even 30, that, oh, well, now, you know, your focus needs to be on family and you, that you can't fit anything else in around that. And that's not at all true. Mm-hmm. Like if you have another passion that you want to pursue, then of course, why not? Like, why can't you? Like I, I would, a big believer in not being limited by society's kind of limitations. You know, if you feel you can do something, then don't listen to the critics, just do it. Oh, I love it. I love it. And this is why I love you so much. And I also love that idea that, you know, we silo ourselves as well, particularly as women. I think in certain decades we silo that as, well, this is the baby decade. And you also, I think, limit almost like self-select yourself out of things because you think that you couldn't possibly physically condition yourself for a marathon in your 30s like my body's you, know, yeah. you kind of think that you're over the hill or that you could never get there but you've yeah you've well and truly proven that it's if you put your mind to something you you absolutely can get there and continue to smash through pbs and, and amazing milestones but take us back to the very beginning and sort of take us from those early years in ireland and your school didn't encourage athletics at all i was reading but that it's it's a passion that in spite of all that you've continued to kind of follow but I also love the idea that you had a whole life as a software consultant before you moved to (laughs) Melbourne and then discovered running so yeah take us through the whole pathway so we can understand how you came into it so I grew up in a small uh, country town in Ireland called Balmullet and it's on the coast Uh, so I was a really active kid I would spend my summers like back at the, at the beach and climbing on cliffs and stuff. And I used to play soccer with the boys and like really, really active. But in school, in my primary school, we didn't have PE at all. So it just didn't factor in. And then in the secondary school that I went to, a local secondary school, it was run by nuns and girls just weren't encouraged to do sport. We were allowed to do basketball, but I remember our PE classes, we had one one a week and we the girls would just sit in the assembly hall and just chat for the the whole hour for the hour or however long the class was and the boys would go and play sport so this didn't sit well with me at all so myself and a couple of the other girls you know challenged that quite a bit and eventually they let girls play Gaelic football and I was not good at Gaelic football and I didn't like it but I had to play it because I kicked up such a fuss about <laughs> getting into the school but that was in my final year and then I chose to do P and Irish teaching at uni so I did that for four years which gave me got experience I guess in lots of different sports but more so from a pedagogical perspective so how we teach it to kids rather than getting into the sport ourselves and I was 17 going on 18 when I went to uni and it's bizarre now when you think of my how late I started running but then it was assumed that you'd found your sport and that you know you should be a master of it already so I kind of winged it a bit and pretended I was into basketball which I was into basketball but and I was okay at basketball but never good enough to you know really be you know, on the Irish team or anything. So <laughs> never say never, Sinead. Your forties has been your peak so far. <laughs> uh, I, I tried my best at basketball. It just didn't happen. <laughs> and then after I did my degree in teaching, I actually didn't. I had chosen PE because I loved sport, but then I didn't really want to teach. So I did a year in IT, and then I started. After that year, I worked in Dublin for a while as an IT software engineer and then moved to Australia in 2002 on a one-year working visa. So the plan was 
just go there for a year and then come home and, you know, see what happens. But myself and Colin, so he's my boyfriend at the time, we're married now. We, you know, did the whole travel down the east coast of Australia, backpacking thing and uh, lived in Sydney for six months and then eventually moved to Melbourne and ended up getting a four year visa through work and then residency. And yeah, we're still here almost 20 years later, which is so funny because it was never the plan. But now, like definitely Australia is home now and Melbourne is home for me. Wow. But yeah, so running didn't feature at all until my son Eddie was born in 2009 and I was just turning 33. And my sister, Grania, lived in Melbourne at the time. Or she, she still lives in Melbourne, but she had just moved across and she, she was taking part in this relay event around the tan in Melbourne. And it was a team event and they were missing one person for the team. And uh, she asked me if I would join their team and just, you know, do this relay event, which I think spanned across 12 weeks or something. And so I did. And the first time I ran around the tan, I... You didn't have to do it as a team. You could do it a kind of solo as well because it was hard to get everyone together. So I just ran it one day and I ran 15 minutes or something around the town. And when I, when I submitted my time, one of the guys was like, that is a lie, Sinead, you've not run that fast around the town. And I was like, yes, I have. So then the following week, I met up with the guys and I was like, all right, this week we're going to run it together. And then... I was so determined to prove a point to this guy that I went even faster. I think I did 14 minutes, 20 or something. That's how fast I drive around the town. (laughs) So he was like, oh my gosh, you should join a running group because, you know, if you're doing this without much training, you should really look into it. And I was like a bit hesitant because Eddie was just three months old and... I was like, oh, do I really want to start up something else? Life is already really full but I I did eventually I think a few months after that I joined a recreational running group and yeah that was really good fun for a few years I met lots of people and it was kind of like a social thing and just had it was all more around uh, the social aspect of it for Mm. the first few years but then my second son Dara was born in 2013 And after that, my coach suggested that I try the marathon distance. So I ran (laughs) Melbourne in 2014 and I got a world champs qualifier. So then. (laughs) You came second, didn't you, in your debut marathon? Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Second to Nikki Chaffel and she is a gun runner. So I was like, wow. Okay. Oh my gosh. That is extraordinary. It was after that then that I started to really take it more seriously and, you know. I was like, okay, I need to give this a good crack and started training properly. And yeah, yeah, it was good. I got to, yeah, so I got to go to the World Champs in 2015 to represent Australia. Oh my gosh. That's that's kind of where it all kicked off when I was 38 then. Sinead. Well, firstly, I also love how you came here like for one year, but we've 100,000% claimed you not only as an Australian, but as a (laughs) Melbourne girl. And like in every single article, it comes up that the tan introduced you to running, like not just Melbourne or Australia, like we claim it, like she's a Melbourne girl through and through. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I've been here nearly 20 years. It's almost like half my life in Melbourne. Yeah. Wow. 
It's amazing, really. And I also just, I love being reminded that, you know, not only did you move to Melbourne at 25 with a completely different career, but it was almost 10 years after that that you by accident discovered running. And I think it's one of those reminders that's so important because, again, like we do get so bogged down in finding our passion and our purpose and there's so many social like conceptions that you need to have found your forever job and settled down by your 30s and you've had your kids and like, you know, that's it. But I just think it's so refreshing that firstly, you're never going to find a passion you didn't know about unless you try new things. So if you just hadn't said yes to that corporate relay, like you never would have discovered it. But once you do get there, it's just a whole new world yeah. can open up to you at any time. And like when we were introduced to you, we were training for the Melbourne Marathon and it was sort of like, so this is Sinead. She started running at 33. She won the Melbourne Marathon in 2018. <laughs> but again, it's like you don't have to do things the conventional way. And if you're really good at something and you find a talent, who knows where it can take you? Yeah, exactly. I, I- I agree with that like not not having to follow somebody else's journey you know take your own journey it doesn't have to be the same path as everyone else but yeah if you enjoy something and you you love it you know it can take you to you know mm. places you didn't really ever think possible and I'm like I never I never thought when I started running you know I wasn't thinking Olympics I wasn't thinking world champs I was just thinking oh I really love this it really you know it gives me this kind of it's a time where I can, you know, think things through and it's, I find it a real good stress relief and I really enjoy it and I'm meeting people and yeah, it was just all something that I love doing. And then, you know, uh, the more experience I got, the better I got. And then my ambitions kind of changed a bit. So I didn't, certainly didn't start off thinking, uh, you know, Olympics, definitely not. <laughs> And I think that's a valuable lesson outside of running as well for anyone listening that, you know, you can go into something and not need to do it professionally and not be aiming for the Olympics or you can start a side hustle and not be necessarily wanting it to be a global conglomerate. Like it's okay to just take the quote that I always love is you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step, but you do have to take that first step and you do have to put yourself out for a corporate relay, even if you don't think you're a runner, because that's how you discover the different facets of your personality. And yeah, I love that it's all it's shown you that you are obviously so good at it, but it also gives me goosebumps to think that you could have never discovered this talent yeah. unless you just tried. So once you did sort of realise, oh, my God, I literally came second in my debut marathon, <laughs> how did you then start training for the Olympics? Like, again, you know, in the conventional sense, people already have coaches, they've been at the AIS, or, you know, they kind of know how you even qualify. How did you sort of figure out what your mission was for Rio yeah so I still I wasn't really thinking Olympics at that stage yet I think because I was 38 and I was receiving a lot of "Mm, well this you know this is your only chance you know you're not gonna you know go much further than this so I thought that world champs would be my kind my only chance to represent Australia internationally but then you know that time came, I raced well, and then Rio was on the cards. But then, unfortunately, I got injured, so I couldn't post a qualifier for that. And been 40, I thought that was my last chance of going to the Olympics. But I think it was, oh, yeah, 2018 when I did Melbourne Marathon again, and I won, and I got the course record, <laughs> and a, a massive PB. I was like, all right, I'm only getting better. I'm not going to listen to... You know, people who tell me that um, I can't continue to improve because what do they know? Mm. Like they have no idea. <laughs> there haven't been that many people in my position where 
you started I've started running so much later so really I'm quite young in running years oh yeah of course because you're fresh yeah so I haven't <laughs> been running in my 20s and so I'm only really like running for 11 years and I've had like two kids in that time so it's not even really been a full 11 years and then I actually switched coaches and running groups at the end of 2018, started 2019. And I had been in a recreational running group. And then when I switched, I moved to Melbourne Track Club. And that's like a, where a lot of professional athletes train. So that really changed things for me because, you know, I got to learn from them and see how, you know, professional athletes train and what they do beyond just the the running side of things you know see what the other things they do to complement their running and my coach Nick he's like a really experienced coach and yeah he taught me a lot and things really improved from there and then I started to you know think about the Olympics and yeah wow. that, that that's when it really became I was like okay I can make Tokyo for like if I really you know, put my mind to it. I'll definitely, I definitely wanted to give it a, you know, a decent crack and not, not be left wondering. Mm. And yeah, so I qualified for that in London Marathon in 2019. That's where I got my PB of uh, 224. And <laughs> that, yeah, that's what got me to the Olympics. Oh my gosh, Sinead. Which is great. And I think the other thing that's really interesting as well is that you already would making such amazing times and that's before you sort of had the right coach the right like it's really interesting how much training is off the track or out like non-running that actually helps you run and then getting the right gear and then becoming a Nike athlete and then getting the right support like you were already amazing before that let alone when you add all those other ingredients (laughs) in which I didn't realize actually made so much difference yeah then headed to Tokyo at the age of 44 and became I love how they even word this the oldest athletic competitor to represent Australia (laughs) I would say the wisest and the most impressive <laughs> but did yeah. amazingly I mean you came top 10 yeah I think that's been probably my best my best race and you know it's a good time best race so far <laughs> it was a good time for it to all come together yeah I was really excited oh by that because a lot went into that and with the whole postponement of the Olympics as well you know by a year I thought oh gosh this is not not good for me but it, in the end, it actually, I was in better shape, you know, in 2021 than I would have been the previous year. So it all, you know, worked out in the end. But yeah, it was an amazing experience. And I hope to do it again in 2024. Oh my God, yes. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I think also one thing that, I mean, obviously you have a lot, I mean, an incredible natural running talent. I think something that you've reminded me a lot and back in 2019 did the same is that physically, Running is, you know, you've got to put in the work, you've got to get the time on feet, you've got to get the right gear, you know, you've got to have a lot of elements of training and preparation right, but actually it's your mind that will give up first in most cases. Like it's you talking yourself out of it or you just giving up halfway through because it's too hard or, you know, it's the mindset that actually gets you over the line much more than your body. I feel like your mind often gives up before your body does. So what goes through your head in a run? And I think that's really in particular uh, relevant to the marathon because it's such a long distance and you have so much time to think and talk yourself out of finishing (laughs) and to convince yourself it's too hard. But and with running in general, it's like it's really tough sometimes. Like it's this daily uh, or if not twice daily thing that you have to do. And on Instagram and everything, it might look really easy. And, you know, athletes just like 
glide on through and it's really easy but it's it's not that like that at all it's really hard to you know get through the training and that but you know it's worth it in the end I think Mm. and it does take a strong mindset definitely I think I've often heard it said that the marathon is you know mostly mentally tough rather than physically tough and I would agree with that because for the first half of the race you're running probably pretty comfortably so you have a lot of time to think about and freak yourself out about the you know the second half finishing and <laughs> the second half yeah and hitting the wall and everything people have asked me before what I think about during a marathon and so I was thinking about this when I raced London just two weeks ago because I can't I, normally I can't remember but I generally zone out quite a bit in the marathon because right. if I start to think about things too much I, I kind of lose focus a bit mm. so really for this race I would I was just thinking about my next drink stop or how my body was feeling and it wasn't feeling great in this race. So I could feel like every bump on the road. I remember thinking, God, I've raced this race before and I don't remember all these hills and I don't remember all these potholes. <laughs> so it's funny. I try to zone out. I think that's the really helps me in the marathon and just kind of at each 5k, just recognize that's another 5k down mm. and, you know, and, you're at 30 before you kind of realize it and then really that's when it gets starts to get really tough I think but at that stage you know you've gone through 30k there's no point in throwing in the towel at that point you really gotta go hard from then I think (laughs) I think that's really uh, this is why it's so useful to have you here because I think people do look at your Instagram and you've you know done the Olympics and then off the back of that you just did London and came 12th like and and in your mind, you were like, oh, that was hard. Like, I didn't really prep that much. And we were all like, you came 12th, dude, in like one of the hardest <laughs> marathons in the world. But it's interesting to know that behind the scenes, just because you're good at it doesn't mean that you run a 42 kilometers and just think it's chill the entire time. It doesn't mean you don't oh, hurt. No. It doesn't mean you don't have the same mental hurdles that we have as you hit 20 and 30. So it's fascinating to know that you find the zone helpful because I found even in a 10, which feels really long to me, that half of it's the mind game of tricking myself into not overthinking how far I've got to go until I'm past yeah. the five. And then suddenly you can go, oh, well, in 1K, there's only 1K till I have 1K from 1K. Like- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you like, yeah. do you listen to music to get in that zone? Do you get into podcasts? Like what are your kind of strategies to ignore the pain or the overwhelm when you're in that first half just to get you through to the second where you can start to go, okay. I'm halfway through. I've got that under my belt. In training, I would listen to podcasts and music on my easy runs. I find that really useful, even though I don't think a lot of elite athletes do that for some reason. But I find it really, I can get through, you know, an hour or two hour run much easier if I'm listening to a podcast or listen to music. It just helps me, definitely. But then in the in the faster stuff, like when I'm doing like Tuesday speed sessions or threshold runs on Thursday or Friday, I wouldn't listen to anything because I need to focus just completely on how I'm feeling physically because it's they're the tougher sessions. Mm. And then in a race, I would never listen to anything. I don't think you're actually allowed because you need to be aware of everything that's going on around you. But I, I would find it really annoying actually to listen to anything when I'm working that hard. So I just focus on making sure that I'm aware of how I'm feeling and how my body is feeling so that I'm not going too hard. Mm-hmm. I want to feel like I'm running comfortably hard. So you, you need to keep checking on yourself or you can get carried away and go too hard. Or you can also 
you know, zone out too much and then realize you're just kind of not really at pace at all. You're falling back quite a bit. Jogging. <laughs> yeah, just enjoying it going, yeah, this is great. <laughs> but uh, so you really, I, I really need to focus. And I, yeah, I think it's actually harder for the first half because it feels much easier. So there's all that thinking time. I find that when it gets physically really tough, my mind switches off and all I'm thinking about is, you know, getting the next K, the next K, the next K. So I think mentally it's the first part of the marathon that's the hardest and then it gets physically hard in the second half. Right. That's so interesting. Oh, my gosh. So what would you say like the submitted questions have almost all been either around nutrition and the warm-up and warm-down, like how the sort of ancillary things, which I, I do want to get into with you, but the main thing has been how do you build up distance gradually? And I can't say that you did it gradually exactly because you, you came straight out into a really fast marathon. But in terms of like you mentioned speed sessions, threshold runs, like what are they and how have you, other than just running and trying to get one more K than you did last time, like what is your advice for people who are doing their first marathon or their first half to go from sort of zero to adding a kilometer on and then slowly getting faster at that distance? How do you build that up? It might seem like I just kind of went out and ran a marathon, but I was 38, 37 before I, and I had, so I'd been running for four years before I tried the marathon distance so I when I started running I started uh I think my first race was a 10k what? um it, so and I did that for a while just five and 10ks and then eventually I built up to a half marathon and did a few half marathons so I I had a lot of years of just doing that distance before I uh, built up to the marathon it's all about gradual increases if I was a non-runner, I wouldn't go straight into training for a marathon because I think you can do it. But I think after the race, you know, physically you might be, it, it <laughs> might be so good for your body. <laughs> you don't want to just get through it either. You know, you want to enjoy it and, you know, get the time that you think, you know, that you can run. So I would build up and start doing, I think 10K races are good. 10K road races mm. build up to that. Actually, and now that we have park run and everything, so that's a 5K distance, doing that every week would really help. That's Saturday mornings, isn't it? Like all around the world, people run 5Ks on a Saturday? Yeah. So that would be a really good thing. And it's that would really help, I think, just kind of structuring your training week as well. And then, yeah, then enter maybe there's quite a few 10K road races on in Australia usually. Not this year, but hopefully next year we'll be back with race, races again. And then, yeah, I look to do in a half. And then when you're kind of fit-ish, you know, you have a base level, building up to a marathon isn't that difficult then because, you know, it, you would need about 12 to 16 weeks of training and you, you build up a little bit each week so it's not as daunting. Mm. So what you start at and where you your final week of training is significantly different, but you've just built that gradually up each week. So, you know, if you were doing, started an hour, but then the following week you do an hour and 10 minutes, the following week an hour and 20 minutes, like you, you wouldn't just go from zero to hero mm. really quickly. Otherwise, you know, you're on the risk of injury. So it's all about just gradual uh, increases in distance, I think, for, yeah, over a longer period of time. Yeah, right, which is how we've been doing it, like sort of going out for an eight and then, 
one day I will have done like, you know, a couple of weeks of eight and then it'll feel good. So I'll go, I think I could like maybe try 10 this week. And then when I've marked yeah. 10 and then the goal for the next week becomes, okay, well now you know you can do 10, so you can try and do 10 again. And what about when you start, like, would you say adding like a kilometer or two kilometers on the end sort of gradually is how you would build up to the distance? Well, so say for example, every time I start a marathon block, so even though I'm training all year round, a marathon block is different Mm -hmm. because it's so intense and it's so long. So I would start my threshold sessions would be seven by 2K. So 2K isn't that big a distance, but then the following week I would do six by 3K. And then the following week I would do five by 4K. So the, the distance is increasing each week as I get fitter and fitter but I would definitely start at the easier the 7 by 2k would be my starting point and then gradually build up each week right did you ever do walk runs like when you were coming into a new distance like if you wanted to go from say 10 to 15 that you'd go up to 15 but you'd walk bits run bits walk bits until the walking bit got shorter like I know some people kind of increase their distances that way yeah I think and a lot of time if especially if I'm coming back from injury or after I had my second second child Dara you know that's how my training started like I would run for a couple of minutes walk and then the the walk parts just got a little bit shorter as I as I built up so then eventually you're doing you know 10 minutes in one stint and then 15 so you just it's all about like making small increments all the time and then those small increments but after you know three months is significant Mm. Yeah, you know, increase. But yeah, the main thing is to not do it too quickly and just to gradually increase Yeah, each week. What about in terms of pace? Like once you've gotten to a particular distance that's feeling quite comfortable, quite a few questions have been around plateauing at a certain distance where that feels comfortable, but you just can't get faster. I kind of... <laughs> throw like I get in a really bad habit of just like throwing repetition at the problem like I'll do the same 10 over and over and be like why aren't I getting faster but I'm like even you saying that you have speed work like I'm guessing that that's you run shorter runs but faster like how do you break through a speed plateau it's funny when I started training actually first that's what I used to do is 10k each week, say I pick one day each week and I would try and get faster each week. (laughs) (laughs) You just hope that you would be faster. (laughs) It works for a while, but then, then you plateau. That's, that's just how it is. If you don't do anything else, you're going to plateau. I think, and then I, from then started to introduce speed sessions on a Tuesday and those are always different. So it's like, not always eight by a K there'd be, you know, four by a K and a lap with the tan maybe, or uh, do some five hundreds or two K reps. It's always changing just to keep it all uh, just so that you're not plateauing and that you're mixing it up because then you have, you get improvements during those sessions without really realizing it. And then you can go back and do eight by a K again. You realize actually I'm faster now than I was, Mm. you know, a few weeks ago when I tried this. Also, um, with, um, you know, if you're, you're running, say, a 10K and you're doing your threshold and you're just trying to improve that each week, a better way to approach it if you want to get faster would be to break it up. So that's, I think, the thinking behind our threshold runs where we do 7 by 2K. So that 2K is at a certain pace. Um, but, like, I... The, the idea is to build up to, like, 2 by 10K or a 20K run. But I'd never... If I started my, just went straight into a 20K run, I'd never do it at the pace I would do after just gradually increasing each week. Mm. 
So I know at the start of a marathon block, I can do 2K at whatever pace. And by the end of the whole block, I'll then eventually be able to do 20K at that pace, but I wouldn't have been able to do that at the start. So you just have to increase each week a little bit. Mm. Like those reps just get a little bit longer. Yeah. So you should, if you want to get faster, I guess, break your threshold into smaller bits. Yeah. So is threshold like the distance that you're aiming for? So threshold is like the runs that you do at kind of race pace. A lot of people do have different approaches to their threshold runs, but for the for our threshold sessions, it's those like 7 by 2 k 6 by 3 k and the building up to make that into a longer session at race pace. Mm-hmm. So you just get longer and longer and longer at, at race pace. And then your speed runs are when you're like sprinting for those shorter distances. So you'd have one day where it's like sprinting faster than your race pace, but in small sessions. And then threshold is at the pace that you want, but broken up. At race pace. Ah. Yeah. At race pace and then just increasing the distance. So you eventually get closer to your race distance as well. Yeah. On Tuesdays, we do speed sessions. So like eight by K, for example, and they would be not sprinting, but a lot faster than, than race pace because you get a minute recovery after each one. Mm-hmm. So you can just, you can go faster for the, the shorter distances. And that really helps. Yeah. Yeah. Keep you, keep you fast. Yeah. Wow. And what on a threshold day, if you were doing say a three by eight K, what would your break be in between those three blocks? So it's usually around two minutes and sometimes oh my it's God, I uh, you meant like half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> All right, no, sorry. Either it starts with a float recovery. So by that, I would mean that I I don't slow down to a jog. I'd keep it kind of slower than race pace, but still Mm -hmm. maintaining an effort. But then as the reps get longer, so as I move into like five by 4K or whatever, generally we'd have a standing recovery of maybe two minutes. Right. Or so. That's so interesting. It's amazing how... That two minutes doesn't sound like a lot, mm. but you actually do recover quite a bit. Yeah. And it does help a lot. I even yeah. find if I have to stop at a traffic light, like I used to get really frustrated because it would break my flow and your mindset gets like you have to pause and everything. But even just like a 30 second like stationary moment, then I'd be so much fresher when I start again. I'm like, that yeah. was actually awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does help. Well, that's so useful to know that just flogging the same exact distance and expecting your pace to increase is probably not going to actually work very yeah. long. What about warm up and warm down? Because I think particularly when you're running for your mental health, I find that when I really need to just get out of the house and just run, I want to go. Like I would just want to start. I don't want to like wait through a warm up and then when I finish, <laughs> I just want to like eat my food and I forget to warm down. But it makes a really big difference like how many days I have to wait until I could do another long run yeah. or I'll be so much slower the next time I go out. So I'm realizing that that extra effort at either end really avoids injury and it helps you actually improve quicker if you're kind of taking care of your muscles on either side. So what do you do for a warm up and a warm down? And then are there any tricks for particularly with those longer distances recovery, like baths or, you know, Epsom salts, like what has helped you around the run? So I would do a warm up and a cool down on my session days. So before a speed session, I'd warm up for 20 minutes. So just 20 minutes, easy jogging. And then the same for the cool down after the session. But for all my other runs, I just, because it's easy running, I don't need to warm up and cool down. So if I'm running for an hour at, a, at an easy recovery pace, I'll just go out the door, run from the door, you know, do a couple of laps of the park and then straight back and that's it. But where you're 
working harder and you're focused on speed or your threshold, you need to make sure your body's warmed up. Otherwise, you're going to likely, there's just a higher risk of getting an injury. And then if you if you don't cool down, you're just going to be really sore the next day, like really sore, and really stiff. It's really important after a hard session mm. to cool down. And I've actually found that I stopped stretching for a while <laughs> after the harder sessions just because... I didn't have time and a lot of people seem to not do it around me, but I think I've, as a result of that, I got much stiffer for a while. So I've reintroduced stretching again. I think it's really important. So I, yeah, I need to make a point of doing that now. So after any hard session, I'll do that. Other recovery things. I think the main thing for me, I found that I need to get up, have a protein drink or something after the harder sessions, because often I don't really feel like eating and like, I could go for maybe two hours and be like, I really don't feel like eating. And that's really bad for your recovery. Yeah. So now I always make a point of having a protein shake any, or any any kind of shake, mm -hmm. like even like a banana smoothie or something straight after. And that that's really helped with the recovery as well. I did ice baths for a while, but I haven't done, they're not very nice. <laughs> I haven't done them for a while. <laughs> I don't know if they have or not, but I think some people find them useful. But I think the biggest recovery thing is uh, sleep. Really, I know it's like everyone says it, but it's really important. I think, yeah, I, it's definitely something that I would lack in. Yeah. But, um, you know, I try to make a point of, especially if I'm building up for a big race that, you know, I get to bed relatively early and try and get a decent night's sleeping. I find even with a shorter run, if I haven't had a good run of sleeping, that I like I went out the other day just to do a 3K because that's all I had time for, and I ran slower than my last 10K because my body was just yeah. like, <laughs> Yeah, and like that builds up as well over time. Like if you're just not getting enough sleep, you just get really fatigued and, yeah, it's really hard to get motivated as well when you're you're lacking in in sleep, I think. Yeah. And the biggest question that I have for you in particular, nutrition, not just like before a race and after a race, but particularly during is something that I think people really struggle with because if you're not used to it, like I don't like shock blocks or whatever, but I'm also not yeah. used to them. So every time I've tried to eat during a race, I get a stitch or I suddenly have a toilet event and it's awkward and then you have to stop. So but then if you don't eat before a race, I can't make the distance because I've got no fuel in my tank. So how do you eat like the night before? How do you make sure you've got fuel before a run, but it's not going to upset your stomach? And then how do you eat during a run? <laughs> yeah, this was something that took me quite a a few years to figure out and quite a few not so great marathon experiences <laughs> to figure out what worked for me. And it's funny because I always had an issue with all the, the goos and the gels and all of that. But since I've switched to Morton, that's been much better for me. And I'm not like trying to plug Morton or whatever, but it's just something that works for me. And I think that's why in training, it's important for everyone to figure out what sits well in their own stomach mm -hmm. because what works for one person isn't going to work for another. And there's a big thing at the moment about training your gut. Um, so what that's about is like what you plan to have during your race. You need to practice that in training. Otherwise, your gut isn't going to cope well with it. So 
you kind of like for me in a marathon block, I would have some Morton. I'd start off with maybe just like one gel or one drink mix for a session and then increase that as I go each week just to train my gut a bit better. And so then for race day, I've had no issues uh, with my stomach since then, which has been, you know, amazing because it can really derail your race. Obviously, if you have to mm-hmm. try and soft search for a toilet and that, it's really frustrating. But um, yeah, the important thing is to train your gut. I think it's just, just get it ready. Yeah. And do you eat before a race? So before a marathon, I would eat three hours usually beforehand. I would have like toast, banana and peanut butter, which is what I have before every training session. So yeah, I wouldn't have any, any additional or anything like that because I've already done two days of carb loading by then. Mm. So I don't feel like I need to have this massive breakfast before a race and definitely get it, have it three hours beforehand. So, you know, it's kind of cleared out almost (laughs) out of your gut before you start. (laughs) And then, yeah, I used to, I used to have a banana, I think an hour beforehand, but I actually haven't done that for a while. I think generally because I'm like sipping on Morton or whatever before the race and the night before it's important as well what you eat. So I've kind of figured out what I like. I just like to have like rice and chicken, Mm. like really plain, bland food it's nothing with too much fiber in it yeah <laughs> this is this is only really before the marathon for other race distances i'm not as not as pedantic about things like i'll i'll just eat whatever i'll still have the same breakfast mm. before a 10k or a half marathon and then you don't need to do carb loading before those races so it's a lot simpler and you don't need to fuel during those yeah. races either so i find them much easier so i don't stress about it as much but it's a big part of the marathon and you have to be careful with it otherwise yeah obviously it can really derail your race regardless of how fit you are if you don't get the nutrition part right you know yeah you won't mm. Yeah, I didn't even realize that you're supposed to, like, because it's just so long, it's actually going to be really hard for you to finish if you don't fuel during it. And I always just thought the easiest way to avoid a bowel issue on the track is just not to eat. But obviously then you just don't have anything to run with. You run the risk then of anything over 90 minutes, you run the risk of, like, I think it's 90 minutes, that you run the risk of running out of glycogen. So, you like, you hit the wall so you can't. You just don't have the energy mm. to to continue. So that's why, you know, it's a good idea in the marathon to start fueling early as well, because often you might you might not want it later in the race. And then it's kind of I found that I can skip a few drink stations and not have something. So we, we generally have the option of having something every 5K. Mm. So I would start like at 5K and 10K and 15 and then by the time I get to halfway, it doesn't matter if I miss a few after that because I'm already kind of fueled up. So do you carry your gels with you or your blocks? Like how do you carry it all? So generally at races, they have like personal drink stops for the elite runners and you can leave your drink or gel. <laughs> yeah. So everyone doesn't have this. But generally in most marathons, they have like refreshment stations for everyone. Mm. So there's drinks and that. But if you want your own stuff, like I would – if I was in that situation, I would carry the gels on me. Like I already carry gels on me in case I miss my drinks. Um, so I would just have them stuffed into my sports bra. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you do that too. I'm like, okay, it's not just amateurs who like carry things in their bra. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would stick yeah, three in there if I, <laughs> if needed. If you don't like those, I know a lot of people really don't like the really glycogeny kind of jelly things. Is there any alternative like 
bits of banana or like dried fruit? Like, do, do you know any runners who use anything else or is that just really what long distance, like they're built for that? Mm, I don't know of anyone using anything else, especially during the race, because even though you might like that stuff when you're not running, when you're racing, you probably wouldn't want anything else. I don't know. I don't <laughs> think I would like it. Yeah. I don't think we would like it. Cause I really don't like the texture of the gels either and normally in training it's difficult for me to get them into me but in a race I just I just get over that that's and, all you want yeah and as long as my stomach sits well with it I'll just get the gel into me what about running uh, like hydrating water wise and not getting a stitch that's another question that's come up quite a lot is that practice as well like just practicing I, I think so yeah I remember in a half marathon actually on the Sunshine Coast, I was trying to practice my hydration for the marathon. And I remember getting, I had a Morton drink at, what, I can't remember, 15K or something. And I like knocked it back as quick as I could because I didn't want to carry the bottle. And then I got this massive stitch for the next 3K. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so for me, I found that if I, when I drink, if I just sip it and I have like a small bottle and I'll just hold it for like over a kilometer and I'll just sip and sip. And I, I don't get a stitch, mm-hmm. uh, like if I do it that way. But if I knock it back too quickly, I'll get a stitch. Yeah. And again, that's something you can practice in training. You can see how, you know, it works for you. And that, that's why it's a good idea, you know, to, yeah. To practice. To practice and get drinks into you in training. It's just see how it sits with you because it's different for everyone. It's so interesting well. that that's such a big piece of advice. Like, of course, it's so obvious. You practice everything else. Why would you not practice drinking and eating? And yet... Yeah, I always am like, hey, it's race day. I'm going to try something brand new. Yeah. So stupid. <laughs> and what about then, this is like, again, one of the things that has come up the most and mainly because I've fueled it because I want to know this, this answer. How do you manage toilet stops? Like, do you just train your bowel and bladder to not need to go? Like over time, do you just kind of work that out or do you stop a lot when you first start doing long distances? Like how do you figure out toilets? <laughs> you know, it's really funny because I think that was one of, I think my major concerns before I started doing marathons was that I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and anyone I've spoken to has had the same concern but it's has I think only once it's been an issue for me and all of the other runners that I know that do marathons it's only one person that I know who had to stop and use the toilet oh my gosh yeah it's I think I think again that is about training your gut and getting used to it and you don't need to really unless it's a hot day you don't really need to hydrate that much in a marathon Mm. like you need to get your carbs into you with your gel or your your carb drink but you don't need to drink lots and lots unless it's really hot like say in uh Sapporo uh this year we had to like hydrate a lot we had to make sure to get water in because yeah it was so hot and humid and even after that race I had drank something every 5k and my stomach was really upset actually after that race but I I was brought in for drug testing afterwards and I couldn't pee for a couple of hours I was so dehydrated like really dehydrated yeah and I drank in doping control I drank like about four or six hundred mil bottles and I was still sitting there going oh my god God. eventually I peed and it was still really dark like really dehydrated yeah oh my gosh and so yeah I mean I don't even run a full marathon and I still always somehow have a toilet event I think maybe I just haven't 
worked out when I need to eat or something because as soon as you run, yeah. like it moves everything around. So I'm always like, oh. <laughs> I think yeah, if you maybe extend like maybe three hours before or maybe four if that works better for you and also like go to the toilet as many times as you can before the race. <laughs> yeah. Like honestly, I would go every three minutes. I'm like, I think I still need to go. I think I need to go again. I think I need to go again. So by the time I'm on the start line, I know 100% I don't need to go. Yeah. And I have seen, I've watched other runners as well, and everyone's just constantly going to the toilet to make sure. <laughs> okay, well, that's <laughs> they don't it's have good to, that it's not just to me that has like, toilet anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> no, a lot of a lot of runners think about this. <laughs> would you drink and eat in a half marathon? No. Oh, you wouldn't need to. No, not on, on. If it was hot, I probably would consider having a drink. Uh, but no, no oh, wow. definitely not for. But I do carry a gel with me in case in my sports bra in case I really feel like I need something around 15k mark. Mm-hmm. But generally not. No, I think if the time that you're racing is less than 90 minutes, then you don't need to yeah. to worry about it. Well, yeah, <laughs> I feel like. I'm like, it's probably still going to be over 90 minutes, so I probably still will need it, but that's fine. <laughs> I think, and but then maybe like have one gel with you and because yeah. you can, they'll always have water on the course and that you can then just have a gel and just have a little sip of water to yeah. wash it down. Yeah, that's true. And the other thing, I mean, you'll probably remember from when we talked in 2019, we were all doing lots of different sessions on shoes. Like the Nike support was so amazing learning about short distance shoes and longer distance shoes and like figuring out for wider feet, narrow feet. And I had literally been trying to run in like the fashion shoes that were literally made for like a basketball court and definitely not built for running. Like I obviously just had never really thought about the fact that there's so much technology now that goes into the shoes for specific purposes. How did you figure out what was the right gear for you? And do you change up your shoes? Like do you have lots of different styles kind of going at one time? Do you change them for distances? Like how do you train? What's your favorite shoes? Oh, so my favorite shoes without a doubt are the Nike Next Percent. <gasps> so I would yes. use them for anything for a 10K and up. I would use them. And I find that my legs are much better after a race if I wear those shoes than if I wear something more minimal. I just recover much better after wearing them. So they are 100% my go-to shoes for anything 10K and above. On the track, I would use Spikes, the Dragonflies. And I love those as well. But I don't wear them as often. And because there's not as much to them, I do pull up a bit worse. But yeah, they're they're my go-to shoe on the track. I think, yeah, how did I... I used to actually choose my runners as well based on aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> And then I just be like, why am I knee shot? And the the person would be like, because these are like tennis shoes. Or they're like, mate, you just run a half marathon in tennis shoes, you idiot. I ran my first few marathons in like like running flats and my legs were in ribbons for weeks after. So not a good idea. So finding the next percent was really good for me. (laughs) But yeah, trial and error on what – I know – some people don't like them. They prefer prefer narrower shoes. But again, just trying them in training. And I mix up my my shoes a lot in training as well. So for my easier runs, I would only wear the next percents for my fast sessions. So in thresholds and speed sessions. And then everything else I would mix up, like maybe use the Pegasus or the Structures or Vimeros. I like to rotate my shoes. Otherwise, yeah, nigg- you can kind of get niggles if you wear the same pair all the time for everything. Uh, yeah, so I like to mix them up. But again, yeah, 
definitely personal preference so you just got to try them out in training and see which ones work for you. Yeah that's been really interesting playing around with shoes and also how many times I would have wanted to run in them before I go out for a really long I mean not really long run compared to you but like a longer run for me and even playing around now like the flyies have a zip up function so you don't have the shoelace problem like it's been so much fun to figure out the different ones that suit you best and also yeah just realizing it makes a massive difference it's like changing the entire floor that you're running on I never understood that until I started (laughs) actually like putting it into practice but if you are finding that your body's not pulling up really well maybe you should you know anyone listening should consider changing up your shoes and trying different things yeah I think so I remember actually before London Marathon in 2019 the next percents had just come out like I had gotten a pair of them that the night before the race at like 7 p.m. So I hadn't worn them or tried them or anything. I think you told so, us the story. An, oh, my gosh. Yeah. An hour before the, the race, I had like one 4% shoe on and one next percent. I was just walking around going, which am I going to wear? Which am I going to wear? And I couldn't decide and I was freaking out. And eventually I wore the next percents. And I was so nervous for that first kilometer. I was like, because oh, I knew I would know within that time frame if I liked them or not. But they felt great. I love them. Oh my and they've gosh. been my go-to shoe since then. <laughs> so it was a bit of a risk, but it paid off. <laughs> That's actually amazing that you can put on a shoe for the first time ever and run a full marathon in them. That's amazing. I Yeah, I generally wouldn't recommend that, but... <laughs> but it worked for you? <laughs> it worked for this one. <laughs> yeah. Remember yeah. the days when you'd have to wear a shoe, like not even a running shoe, but you just have to wear shoes around the house for like days before they were ready yeah. to put on and now the technology's just come so far. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Sinead, thank you so much. Basically, this has just been me asking all my personal questions and pretending that people <laughs> submitted them because I was like, I want to pick your brains about this particular topic. But I've learned so much. You are such an inspiration and such an amazing role model for for running in general. I can't wait to see what happens over the next couple of years and following you to Paris. How exciting. Yeah, fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, this has been fun. And very last question for you, though, because I love quotes so much. What's your favourite quote? Oh, (laughs) so I I don't have a favourite quote, but I, I did read this quote from Steve Jobs recently that really resonated with me. So this is it. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. And that's really resonated with me just because I've kind of broken the mold a bit. And, in you know, with my athletics journey has been so unique. And I think it's important that people know you don't have to, you know, li- follow somebody else's rules all the time and follow the traditional path into whatever your pursuit your pursuit is so I think you shouldn't be limited by other people's limitations and that you know nobody else knows what you're capable of other than yourself so you really believe in yourself and and go with it and don't yeah don't be limited by other people's limitations I guess (laughs) or perspectives oh my gosh what a beautiful way to end and that is exactly what you represent to me so I'm so 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 thrilled to have been able to share a bit of your energy and wisdom with everyone else today thanks Sarah it's been fun the pleasure. 
Another wonderful non-linear pathway into running that shows you just never know when your greatest passion or brightest chapter could be just around the corner. I'm so inspired by Sinead. Every time I get to speak with her, I think we have such negative conceptions around time passing or it being too late to start something new, but she's just the perfect example that you're never too old and it is never too late, even in something as demanding as a marathon. If you enjoyed, as always, we would so love to hear from you. So please share this episode or anything you learn from Sinead tagging at Diver Sinead at Nike Running and at Rebel Sport. Rebel Sport is calling campaign has been really resonating with me through these chats. Sport can be so transformative and really such an antidote to life's challenges of which we have had many over the past two years. So I hope this is helping you all embrace that and motivating you to achieve your running potential wherever you may sit on the spectrum from beginner to pro. If you have any further questions, just let me know and I can pass them on to our wonderful guests. Otherwise, I'll be back next week for more to dive further into fueling the right way. Hope you're all seizing your yay.